sort of the guest pastor for the summer. I don't really know what the right word is, but uh, Pastor Mark is on sabbatical, and I have had the joy and the privilege of uh, occupying the pulpit for last month, and I will for this month. And I realized as we started into the summer that children come, so I decided before the regular message I want to do something for the kids. And I've also discovered when I do something for the kids, adults tend to pay attention too. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> First Kings chapter 18, starting with verse 17, is our text for the day, or where we start for today. Have you ever said, I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow? And then a week later said it again. I really mean it this time. Tomorrow, I'm going to start my diet. After a few more weeks, you said it yet again. I have to get on a diet tomorrow. It begins. And now you're hearing me talk about this and realize you still have not started your diet. So you're thinking, I do need to get serious about this. This time, I'm really going to do it. Tomorrow. Well, this is called wavering between two opinions. On the one hand, you're thinking, I need to do this now. On the other hand, you've not really made up your mind to do it now. So you are mentally messing around with a possibility while putting off the making of a real decision. A key verse in our text today is 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. We have a long text, but verse 21 is a key text. From the New International Standard Version of the Bible, it reads, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. In the same verse from the old King James Version of the Bible, we find the words, How long halt ye between two opinions? Then in the New American Standard Version of the Bible, the wording is, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? In the language of the ancient Hebrews, these words translated wavering or halting or hesitating come from the idea of limping and stumbling around. It's about movement without progress. You might picture a person who's drunk or delirious or for some other reason mentally disconnected. This person staggers in circles. He gets up. He takes steps in, a few, in one direction. Then he falls down. He gets up again but aims in a different direction. He walks a while then falls down again. He's up. He's down. He's here. He's there. But he never gets anywhere. Well, when this concept is applied to thinking and decision-making, it puts before us the kind of person who says, should I or shouldn't I? Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I might, but I might not. I don't know if I think so or I think not. And I suppose when it comes to dieting, this wavering, halting, and hesitating is not necessarily a big deal. I mean, if our health is not at stake and all we're concerned about is trying to look better, maybe it's okay to procrastinate. And by the way, I did come across advice for knowing if you need to go on a diet. For those of you who are wondering about such a thing, this might be helpful. Number one, you know you need to go on a diet if your definition of doing crunches is eating a bag of Doritos. (laughs) Number two, you know you need to diet if you do a push-up and most of your body is still on the floor. Number three, you know you need to diet if you go to the golf course and if you put the ball out where you can see it, you can't hit it, but if you put it where you can hit it, you can't see it. (laughs) So this business of dieting may or may not be a big deal, but when it comes to a decision such as should I quit smoking, 
the matter can be much more serious. For health and length of life are at stake. When it comes to decision-making about living for God, the matter becomes ultimately serious, for eternity is at stake. When it comes to one's relationship with God, there is no time to stumble around from here to there with no choice being made. And this is why the prophet Elijah challenged people to stop hesitating and why he let them know there was an issue relating to their spiritual lives which needed to be settled immediately. Eternity was a stake. About his exhortation to stop hesitation and to cease mentally stumbling around, we're now going to see three main things. A challenge, a contest, and a consequence. We start with the challenge. After almost three years of Elijah staying in places where Ahab could not find him, the Lord directed that the two of them finally meet. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 17 tells us how the meeting began. The moment Ahab saw Elijah, he said, Is it you, the one who troubles Israel? In other words, he was immediately placing blame. He didn't start with, hi, how you doing? It's been too long since our paths have crossed. Instead, it was, there you are. You're the bad guy. You're the one who's brought this misery to Israel. Now, the thinking behind those words was Elijah was the one who had said it's not going to rain. He had told Ahab so, and it had not rained since Elijah had said it's not going to rain. So Ahab was saying, this drought is your fault. Verse 18 tells us how Elijah responded to that. The meeting was definitely not off to a pleasant start, for he too did not say, hi, how you doing? Hope you had a good day. Let's gently work our way into this conversation. Oh, no. Elijah came right back at the accusation, I am not the troubler of Israel, you are. The literal reading of the verse is, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. This is like two children saying, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. You did it. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You're to blame. Uh Uh-uh. Yes, you are. Uh Uh-uh. I did too. You did not. I mean, obviously, this was not going to be a constructive conversation. Ahab had hardened his heart against the truth of God's judgment, and Elijah was not going to back down from telling the truth about God's judgment. Ahab would not take the blame. Elijah would not change the message that Ahab was to blame. The conversation would go nowhere. Elijah knew it. So he switched from, yes, you did, no, you didn't, to a call for action. It was time for the controversy to be settled by way of proof. Now, the text does not tell us that Elijah said to Ahab, put your money where your mouth is. But essentially, in the next verses, that's what he said. Look at verse 19. Elijah continues to speak. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, this was a bold challenge. His meaning was, I want you to tell everyone in the nation to come and see what happens when I face off against 850 of your prophets who serve your idols. I want it to happen on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was part of a coastal mountain range in northern Israel. It extended from the Mediterranean Sea into the southeast, 
No one is sure of the exact spot where the confrontation between Elijah and the false prophets took place. But in light of tradition and the area's geography, it would likely have been at a plateau area at least 1,000 feet in elevation. It was a high place, but this is important. And that is, as part of a mountain range, there were other high places nearby with slopes where people could sit and watch what was going on. So in simple terms, this was a natural arena. It was a mountaintop stage that everyone in the nation could know how to find, and it was a place where thousands of people could position themselves with a good view of the event. Ahab accepted this challenge. I find myself wondering, what was he thinking? Did he not know better than to take on the prophet of the true and living God? I mean, Elijah's the one who said it's not going to rain, and it hadn't rained. So Ahab should have had a clue that Elijah did know the true and living God. He should have known Elijah is nobody to mess with. But Ahab didn't comprehend this. There's a verse in the New Testament that speaks of having one's conscience seared. It's 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. A seared conscience is a conscience which has been sealed off from messages it would otherwise receive. It belongs to a person who has followed evil for so long, the reality of righteous truth can no longer get through to this person. It appears Ahab was such a person. His conscience was seared. He did not see. He did not hear. He did not understand the message of truth. Now, there are other message or verses in the Bible, a number of them, which speak of having a hard or stubborn heart. An example is Romans 2.5. It says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Ahab was a man with a hard heart. By way of his stubbornness, his bad attitude, and his wicked behavior, he had set himself up for devastating personal failure. And before we say more about Ahab, and before we say more about his story, on the matter of making life-changing decisions, we should all remind ourselves, and I say, listen carefully now, we should all remind ourselves it is possible to put off a right decision for so long. It is possible to stay with the wrong thing for so long, the ability to turn back to the right is shut down, maybe in a way from which we can never recover. This is why in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. The meaning of that text is the time to respond properly to God is now. We are to respond to God now, when we can, while we can. And a critical reason for doing this is a day may come when we cannot. Ahab was a spiritually dense and foolish man. He had made himself into this kind of man through his own rebellion against God. It would cost him dearly. This brings us to the second main part of the story from the challenge we come to the contest. Ahab did exactly as Elijah asked. I mean, how stupid could he be? But he did it. He told the entire nation about the challenge. Then he brought his prophets to the mountain. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 20 says, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. 
And this is where Elijah delivered those words about the need to make a decision. This is when he stood up before the gathered crowd and prophets and he said, it's time to make up your mind. You need to quit messing around with this. Uh, Who do you believe is God? Is the Lord God or is it Baal? How long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? Now, it's interesting to note at the end of verse 21, we are plainly told, the people said not a word. These words of Elijah were greeted with absolute silence. Now, there was good news and bad news in that. You've heard good news and bad news jokes, have you not? Such as, Pastor, the good news is Mrs. Jones is wild about your sermons. The bad news is she's also wild about the Simpsons television show, Howard Stern and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) Or the good news is the church women's softball team finally won a game. The bad news is the opponent they beat was the church's men's softball team. (laughs) Or the good news is Pastor Dwayne's not going to try to tell any more of these jokes today. The bad news is another Sunday's coming. He may now go at it again, but... Well, the failure of the audience to answer the prophet was bad news and good. The bad news was no one in the crowd was willing to speak up for the true and living God. But the good news was, since there was silence, Elijah could continue speaking and continue being heard. Therefore, he laid out the terms of the contest. 1 Kings 18, 20 through 2 through 24. It's a fairly long uh, scripture to read. If you have your Bibles, follow along. I have part of it up on the screen there. Elijah said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Ahab's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of my God. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. There are several things to notice in those verses. First of all, Elijah sees himself as the only true prophet of the Lord who is left. And actually, Elijah did not really know how many other servants of God were in the land. He may have made a wrong assumption about this. I mean, this is what he said, but we need to remember that Elijah was human. He was imperfect. And when we get to 1 Kings 19, we will see his imperfection amplified. But he did know on this specific occasion that no one else was standing with him. In terms of prophets, he was outnumbered 450 to 1, and that was only counting the prophets of Baal. For some reason, the prophets of Asherah were left out of the count. The second thing to notice here is the exact nature of the contest. It would be a test to see whose God sends down fire from heaven. The false prophets would have their altar. Elijah would have his. On each would be a butchered bull. Uh, Each would call upon their gods or Elijah on his God to send down fire. Everyone is going to watch to see what's going to happen here. And that's the third thing to notice. The people on hand liked this idea. Finally, the people had something to say. Hey, yeah, that's a good plan. We like this. Everybody's in agreement. The contest began. Verse 25 tells us the Elijah, Elijah allowed the prophets of Baal to go first. Verse 26 tells us they put their bowl on the altar and began to pray. They started praying in the morning. They prayed all the way until noon. Nothing happened. Verse 26 also tells us they danced on their altar. 
In reference to this, the King James Version says they leaped on the altar. The English Standard Version says they limped around the altar. Now, the reason for the different wording is to convey the idea this was random, frenzied behavior. In their efforts to get the attention of their false gods, these prophets of Baal were crazy and even hysterical. They were doing all kinds of weird things and making lots of noise in hopes that their gods would notice. Look at verse 27. There is humor in the Bible. This is a great example. It tells us at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. He watched professional football. Those guys get in your face. All of a sudden, Elijah's taunting the prophet. Shout louder, he says. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. Now, this is an awkward thing to talk about. But many think the Hebrew word translated traveling or busy is reference to using the bathroom. So what Elijah said is, hey, I know why your God can't hear you. He had to go relieve himself. And it's very likely the crowd, which already would have been entertained by all the weird behavior of the false prophets, laughed out loud at this. And this made the false prophets even crazier than they already were. Verse 28 says, So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. They mutilated themselves in an effort to get their God's attention. Yet nothing happened. Their false gods were not hearing their cries, nor were their false gods responding to their self-inflicted suffering. Now here's a simple yet extremely important truth. Listen carefully. The reason their gods did not answer is because their gods did not exist. They were worshipers of that which was not there. You can knock on the door all you want, but if nobody's home, you're not going to get an answer. Concerning their gods, nobody was home. Nobody ever had been home. Their gods were not there, so no answers would ever come. And sadly and unfortunately, we have the same thing in our time. In modern American society, we do not have worshipers of Baal and Asherah. But there's a problem equal to worshiping such false gods and maybe greater. It is the belief that God will be whatever we want him to be. In the here and now, there are many, far too many, who are seeking to worship a God of their own imagination, their own creation. I've heard it with my own ears. I'll bet you have too. People say, I can't believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible. I can't believe that, that God could possibly be what the Bible says he is. Therefore, my God is like this. And then they tell you how the God they believe in will let everyone into heaven no matter what. The God they believe in is okay with all lifestyles, whether or not they're biblical. The God they believe in is happy with all world religions. And as long as people are sincere and trying hard, their God is going to be pleased with whatever people think and do. They believe that that their God somehow is accommodating to whatever they want. In other words, rather than accepting God for who he has revealed himself to be, they are making God into whatever they want him to be. And this is absolute foolishness. Imaginary friends are not real. And so imaginary gods are not real. Human beings do not have the option of deciding on their own who God must be and what God must be. God is who he is. 
He is not what we want him to be. He is who he is. And a person who tries to make God into whatever he or she wants God to be, in the end, will be in just as hopeless a situation as were these false prophets in the time of Elijah crying out to a God that did not exist. Does the God you believe in really exist? We do not decide who God is. We accept and believe what he has revealed himself to be. The reason the Bible is such an amazing and awesome book is it is the way the almighty God of the universe has chosen to identify himself to mankind. The reason Jesus Christ is such an amazing, awesome person is he in this world was the living revelation of the true and eternal God. If prayers are to be heard, they must be made to the God who is there. The God of the Bible who we come to know through faith in Jesus Christ, He is the God who is there. And when we open our hearts to Him, He is the God who comes to be here in our hearts. We'll continue with the story. The contest wasn't over. Throughout the afternoon, the false prophets kept up their madness. They continued gyrating, shrieking, and cutting themselves, but nothing happened. Finally, it was Elijah's turn. Verse 30 tells us he told the crowd, come up close. He wanted everybody to see what was going to happen next. We're told he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been broken down. He repaired it in a way that made it clear his God was the God who had revealed himself to to Israel. His God was the God the sons of Jacob had known. This was not about the false God now. This was about the God the nation of Israel should have known from the beginning. Then Elijah did something surprising. He asked that a deep trench be dug around his altar. I'm sure the crowd wondered why. He put the firewood in place. He put his bowl on the altar. Then he asked for barrels of water. The text tells us water was obtained and poured all over his altar. So much water was used, it filled the trench that had been dug around his altar. And that, of course, was the purpose of the trench. Verse 35 says, the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. He soaked down his sacrifice in extravagant style. There's two reasons why he did this. It's important to know, especially the second one. The first reason is he simply increased the level of difficulty for himself. Showing that not only could he do what the false prophets couldn't do, but he could do it in a more difficult situation. But number two, very important. This this pouring of water all over the altar made it so that apart from a miracle, it would be impossible for this thing to burn. Had he not done this, you can imagine somebody saying, hey, I know what happened. When nobody was looking, Elijah just struck, struck a flint to it, you know. There's all this distraction going on, and he just lit that fire when nobody was paying attention. But now nobody could say that because he had created a situation by way of all this water where starting a fire would have been humanly impossible. I must also mention that the critics of the Bible have jumped all over this business of so much water. They say, look, this can't be true. Remember, this was the time of drought. Where did he get all the water? And the answer to their objection is there's a natural spring of water in the Mount Carmel range that flows all the time no matter what. Even in a time of terrible drought, it could have been flowing because it wasn't water from the skies. It didn't rain during the drought. It was rather water coming up from beneath the surface of the earth. And beyond that, Mount Carmel was close to the seacoast, so even in drought, it would be more likely that there was water there. Then at the end of verse 40, we see the mention of the brook Kishon. It was nearby, and it seems to have yet been flowing on that occasion. 
So, so the so whole idea of where the water come from is not an objection, or an, I should say not a valid objection. It's not an issue. What matters is Elijah set up his sacrifice, soaked it down with water, then called upon his God, 1 Kings 18, verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. He did not scream. He did not rant and rave. He did not put himself into a trance as if it was his powers of concentration that brought down the fire from heaven. No, he prayed like you and I know how to pray. He prayed that all those watching would know the real identity of the true and living God. And this brings us to the third and final part of the story, the consequence. His prayer was answered immediately. His prayer was answered in spectacular style. The answer to his prayer was awesome. The answer to his prayer was a display of frightening power. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. And burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Try to picture it in your mind, an instant stream of fire coming down from heaven. An explosion of fire around the altar that consumes everything, even the stones of the altar, and it vaporizes all the water. When the people saw this, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They got the message. This was followed by Elijah giving them another message. He said, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any one of them get away. Verse 40 tells us the people did this. And not only did they seize the prophets, they killed them. The crowd suddenly had passion and anger. They wanted to exterminate those who had led them astray. They wanted to rid the land of those who had put them in danger of everlasting judgment. A decision had been made. The people of Israel would again be followers of the true and living God. On April 21st, in the year of the year 1986, about 30 million Americans experienced a huge disappointment, similar to knocking on the door and finding nobody home. It was set up by the television personality Geraldo Rivera. He had found a secret vault in the Lexington Hotel in Chicago. It appeared this vault had belonged to the notorious gangster Al Capone. There was the possibility that hidden away in this vault were piles of money and maybe even a dead body. A medical examiner was on hand, so if a body was found, he could examine it. Internal revenue agents were on hand, so if money was found, they could confiscate it. That's what they do. Uh, The television special was live. On air, this vault was excavated and opened so everyone in America all at the same time could see what the contents of the vault would be. The special lasted two hours. The suspense was tremendous. Finally, near the end of the show, the vault was opened and inside was what you see up on the picture. (laughs) Nothing but dust, dirt, and an empty bottle. No body, no money, nothing. Geraldo's team did their best to dig around inside the vault, hoping to find something that would justify their efforts. They did not. In fact, the show ended up becoming infamous for its disappointing ending. It was a letdown. It was a dud. Some of you act disappointed right now, and I'm just telling you about it. (laughs) It was a bummer. 
All that excitement, all that publicity, all that money to open the vault for nothing. Listen carefully, and with this I end. People can survive watching a television special that promises big and delivers nothing. But nobody can survive living with a spiritual belief that promises big yet delivers nothing. That's what the false prophets did. If at the end of life we discover our faith has been in that which is not there, what a terrible eternity will follow. Do not allow yourself to be eternally disappointed. Do not be somebody who's put your hope in an empty idea. Settle the matter now. Make up your mind now. Know the God who's there. The God of the Old Testament that Elijah knew. The God of the New Testament revealed through Jesus Christ. Give your heart to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If that has never happened before, quit messing around. Quit putting it off. Don't say tomorrow. Take care of it right now. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes. We conclude the messages by asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes because it is so important to take a message personally. What is God saying to you about what you've just heard? If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, that's the first thing to hear. Time to do it now. Make that decision to be a Christian now. Open your heart to Christ. Maybe there's something else, though, in life you've been putting off. Some other spiritual decision you've been messing around with and you've just not got it settled. God's speaking to you now. Why not go ahead and make that decision now and ask God to help you follow through? And will you also take heart that the God of the Bible is the true and living God? Commit yourself to knowing him. Please understand, God is never going to be what you try to decide he should be. He is what he is. Set your heart on knowing who he is. Oh, Father, our prayer is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our hearts to who you really are. In that name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We have a final song to sing.